Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. Okay, and welcome back. There you go. We got the Journal Club, Tammy Sparacino Journal Club. The floor right. is yours. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, today we are going to be discussing an article. It's actually a commentary on another article, and we'll get into that as well. It was published in the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery Techniques um, in June of 2020. Title is Commentary, Taking the Next Step in Cardiopulmonary Bypass Management by Dr. Lodge and by Mr. Sifring, who is a perfusionist. Okay, central message. Cardiopulmonary bypass technology continues to advance. More sophisticated monitoring strategies could be beneficial in improving the outcomes of patients for whom open-heart surgery is necessary. Okay, the reason this paper was published is it was a commentary. So it wants to discuss um, their thoughts, the author's thoughts, on um, another article that was um, published in the same journal and so here is the problems that were to be solved in the article that they're commenting on. So again, this was published in June 2020, same journal. Um, associations between oxygen delivery and cardiac index with hyperlactemia during cardiopulmonary bypass by Condello and his colleagues. Read you the abstract. Metabolism management plays an essential role during cardiopulmonary bypass. There are different metabolic management devices integrated into heart-lung machines. The most commonly used and accepted metabolic target is index oxygen delivery, or DO2, at 280 milliliters per minute per meter squared, and a cardiac index, or CI, of 2.4 liters per minute per meter squared which can be managed independently or according to other metabolic parameters. Our objective was to compare lactate production during cardiopulmonary bypass procedures using different metabolic management, DO2, in relationship or in relation to indexed oxygen extraction rate, or OER, and CI in relation to mixed venous oxygen saturations. That's right, mixed venous, SVO2, right? Yes. SCV, that there's SCVO2, SVO2, SCVO2. I yes. know there's a lot of different. Yeah, a lot of different terminology has, there. Right, there's, it's alphabet soup. It really and is. And knowing what they all mean, you have to know it because <laughs> it's where you're measuring it. Right, and it can get very confusing, indeed. Okay, so how is this done? So their methods. Data on 500 cardiopulmonary bypass procedures were retrospectively collected in a specialized regional tertiary cardiac surgery center in Italy. They looked at the time period September 2012 through November 2019. In group A, the DO2 with 280 milliliters per minute per meter squared target in relationship to um, OER, or oxygen extraction rate, of 25% was used. And in, these are, in, this is indexed, right? So it's yes. a DO2I. 
Yes, gotcha. indexed, and correct. O2ERI. Yes, Got all it. indexed. In group B, the cardiac index with 2.4 liters per minute uh, per meter squared target in relation to SVO2, 75% was used. Which would be it? an extraction rate of 25%. Right. Right. So they're trying to compare two different methods, but trying to still keep the same parameters, if you will, looking at it from two different sides. Yeah. And, and, and to me, and of course, I'd have never thought to even consider that because one seems to, it should make sense that if you've achieved this, for example, an SVO2 of 75 you should have your extraction rate of 25% because they go together, So you right? should have more than adequate perfusion, which I have believed that for many years. Right. Okay, so they're looking at two different ways of making sure that they have adequate perfusion. Um, during CPB, serial um, arterial blood gas um, analysis with blood lactate and glucose determinations were obtained. So they're going to track the lactate, they're going to track the glucose. Um, Hyperlactic, uh, hyperlactatemia, or HL, was defined as peak arterial blood lactate concentrations of greater than 3 millimoles per liter. The post-operative outcome of the patients with or without HL were, uh, was compared. Okay, so here's their results. Eight pre- and intraoperative factors were found to be significantly associated with peak blood lactate levels during CPB um, at uh, univariate analysis. HL, which remember stands for high lactate, lactate yeah. right, uh -huh. greater than three millimoles per liter, that's what's considered HL, was detected in 15 or 6% of patients in group A. Remember, group A is the one that they're tracking the DO2. Right. Okay. And in 42 or 16.8 percent uh, of patients in group B, it was which not was just SVO2, which just is cardiac index and SVO2. Now it wasn't um, uh, statistically significant. However, um, they uh, did find some things that you might find kind of intuitive and leads you to want to do additional studies in this field. So. Hyperglycemia greater than 160 was found in 23 in group A, which was 9%. 53 in group B, which was 21%. Patients with HL during CPB had a significant increase in serum creatinine values, higher rate of prolonged mechanical ventilation time, and intensive care unit stay. A cutoff of DO2 of less than 270 milliliters per minute per meter squared in relationship to uh, O2ER greater than 35 um, in group A and a cutoff of cardiac index less than 2.4 liters per minute uh, per meter squared in relation to SVO2 of less than 65% in group B were both found to have a positive predictive value of 80% and 75% of HL, respectively. A cutoff of DO2 greater than 290 in relation to um, oxygen extraction of 24% in group A, and a cutoff of cardiac index of greater than 2.4 liters per minute per uh, meter squared in relation to SVO2 greater than 75% in group B, were found to have negative predictive values of 78 and 62% of um, HL respectively. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. That's, yeah. it, I find that fascinating. It is. And, and look what a small amount it is. So, you know, we're just talking about um, for DO2, the difference is only from 270 to two, uh, from 280 rather to uh, two, less than 270. It's, you know, so some of them obviously were 270. That's why they chose that particular number to say mm -hmm. less than. Mm -hmm. And the SBO2, only from 75 to 65 percent. Mm -hmm. And although I think we all aim to purviews uh, and have SVO2s greater than 65, 65 is actually usually the cutoff for the, the bottom level that is considered acceptable. But here they're saying that, that, you know, that's not really acceptable. You've already passed that point. Yes. But again, and I, I don't want to belabor this point, but I do think it's at least worth saying uh, and discussing short-term or long-term. Mm -hmm. So how long were they at that state during their cardiopulmonary um, bypass period? Was it transient that. or was it, it sustained? Right. I think they took several data points. So let me see hey. if I can find that. Uh, they discussed that. Well, here, we'll come back to that when we get okay. to discussion. Let me just continue on. So here's a nice uh, uh, graphic that just is a summary of what I just said. So if that was a lot of letters and numbers to kind of follow along, you can look here. So they had a 500 total procedures over uh, about a seven-year period. Group A was the one where they looked at DO2 and oxygen extraction, and Group B was cardiac index and SVO2. And you can see that... <clears throat> Lactate um, was uh, considered hyperlactemia uh, in only 15 patients versus 42 patients of the cardiac index group. Glucose greater than 160, 23 mm -hmm. patients versus 53 patients mm -hmm. in the other group. And here's their conclusions. A significant reduction in intraoperative lactate correlates with better postoperative outcome in terms of creatinine, mechanical ventilation time, and intensive care stay. Mm -hmm. So do we need to improve dramatically how we cannulate patients to make sure we can completely decompress the heart and flow enough. Well, that's actually something I'm going to not go too deep into that, but that's mm -hmm. actually a, a very smart consideration that, you know, originally these authors um, either didn't consider or just went with the data they had, but they did not exclude patients based on different types of cannulation. So you had uh, peripheral cannulation as well, as well as central cannulation, and are those really comparable? Uh, no. Right. I can answer that so question. So that's, that's, a, that's a problem with this study. Okay, so the conclusions of... Unless you're doing minimally invasive mitral valve through the right anterior thoracotomy with hyperkalemia technique, mm -hmm. as long as you don't have AI. Yeah. Because we found out how devastating that is. It's not good with AI. No. <laughs> um, so the conclusions of this study article by Condello... This retrospective observational analysis showed that management of DO2 in relation to OER was 16% more specific in terms of negative predictive value for HL during CPB compared to the use of cardiac index in relation to SVO2. 
Group A reported a significant reduction in the incidence of intraoperative lactate peak correlated with postoperative reduction of serum creatinine value, mechanical ventilation time, and intensive care unit stay compared to Group B. Okay, so this is the article that the commentary was about. Now let's hear what our commentary authors thought about this article. So when I'm talking about authors' conclusions, I'm talking about the original article, so that would be Dr. Lodge and Mr. Sifring. Okay. So they, they found some limitations, and we've kind of touched on that a little bit. So some of the limitations of this study include variables for which there was no control, because remember this is retrospective, not prospective, um, such as the inclusion of both open and closed circuits, the use of central and peripheral cannulation, Importantly, the study was used, uh, or used a consecutive patient series in which, which means, you know, it took place over a long period of time, just all the patients that were within that seven-year period. So our authors of the commentary thought that the control group represented an earlier period than the study group. This calls into question whether an error effect could have been involved because variables and other uh, other than the CPB management strategy could have changed over time and affected these observations. In addition, although not all groups, especially in North America, have access to or currently use continuous DO2 in CPB, its use could have advantages, advantages because SVO2 might be less sensitive to changes in various tissue beds. The most common correlation for a lower SVO2 and presumably a higher oxygen extraction rate would be to increase the overall CPB flow. And indeed, in the study by Condello and his colleagues, the cardiac, um, for the lowest cardiac index on CPB was 2.6 compared to the 2.4 that was in the, um, mm -hmm. the uh, group B, which was the control group. It's significantly different. Because the DO2 and the oxygen extraction incorporate more variables, it could have led the perfusionist to increase the pump flow in response to changes that were not observed simply with the SVO2. For one, one thing, they're monitoring lactate. If you see lactate going up, you know you don't have good perfusion. Of course, you're going to increase your flow, right? Yes, yes. Of course. Um, in addition, the patients in the study group if an increase in pump flow alone did not improve the oxygen extraction, other variables contributing to the oxygen delivery could have been modified. Mm -hmm. And we have no way of knowing that. Now, yes. Let me know. Uh, I'll wait until you're. Yeah, let I'm me know when done. I can. Let me know when I can talk. Yes, yeah, so I've got there. some thoughts. I'm going to want you to come back to that slide, though. Okay. So, in conclusion, the commentary authors found. The findings from the study make an intuitive sense and co uh, corroborate the observation that many investigators in surgery and critical care have reported about oxygen delivery and consumption dynamics in patients. Should these findings be validated in uh, a contemporaneous, prospective, or even randomized studies, it should lead to a justification for more widespread use of more contemporary sophisticated monitoring, which might in turn lead to improved patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's it for the, I have a little bit more um, regarding uh, 
monitoring DO2, but mm -hmm. if you want to discuss this no, specifically. No, let's go ahead. God, we can always come back to it. Why don't you finish your okay. your your thing? Okay. So This then, is really good, by the way. I'm very impressed. It's, Thank you. It's, it's very interesting. I, I find this very interesting. I can't wait to hear John's comments on this because I know he loves this too. So. He does, and he's, he's, he's I mean, I'd say he, he's considered um, certainly one of the experts in this field. Absolutely. Okay, so really what it comes down to is how could you implement this in your practice? Well, you Goal-directed perfusion. I just did goal-directed therapy. I know. I'm not going to go into detail uh, the way you did. Did you read any of Shoemaker stuff or Schumacher, Shoemaker, however you want I to say I have in the name. past. Yeah, it's really good stuff. Well, and then Renucci, uh, you know. And Renucci, yeah. Yeah, the, the gift trial. Those are all very interesting. And then that guy from uh, Detroit, uh, Rivers, Manny Rivers. Dr. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's yeah. another big one. But all of this was critical care related, not necessarily perfusion, right. cardiac surgery related. Right. And I'm not really going to get into those aspects of it, but those are really good reading if you're interested in goal-directed um, perfusion. And, and they can really give you a, a, a broader picture, uh, certainly, that I'm going to do about um, why this targeted um, perfusion goals can really, uh, you know, can really affect, specifically, they discuss a lot of AKI and protecting, pre protecting the kidney. But what I wanted to talk about is, as perfusionists, how can we use this, you know, now that we know that DO2 is probably um, a much better way to gauge how much we need to be flowing to our patients, how can we implement this into our practice? Sometimes we don't have a lot of control over the devices that we use, right? True. So if you don't have, let's say, um, you know, I think uh, the, the Levanova, um, their... Uh, Connect. Connect, yes, thank you. Their Connect, it, it, it monitors DO2. You know, there's some different devices out there. I'm not familiar with all of them. But let's say you don't have any devices, but you think, well, this really makes sense. How, mm -hmm. how am I going to be able to do this? There actually was um, an article that was published in 2019 and I'm going to reference it here, and I'm just going to touch on it a little bit. It's a very short article. I highly recommend that you read it. It was a techniques article published in um, the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology, and it was by Sry and his um, uh, colleagues and here, out in Massachusetts, and uh, they were in the VA hospital there. Here's what they found. I'm going to just read you this abstract, and then I'm just going to get to the main point of their article. Traditionally, blood flow rates on cardiopulmonary bypass are based primarily on the formula that matches cardiac index to the patient's BSA. However, Renucci and Associates in the Goal-Directed Perfusion Trial, also known as GIF, um, has shown that coupling the BSA with delivery of oxygen, or DO2, known as Goal-Directed Perfusion, may be safer approach to determine appropriate blood flows. The objective of this study was to create a, a goal-directed perfusion reference tool that would allow perfusionists to quickly determine the lowest acceptable blood flow needed to provide a patient of any BSA with a satisfactory DO2 without the need for any additional dedicated technology. We approached this problem by deriving a formula for flow, liters per minute, based on BSA, oxygen content of the blood, and a minimum DO2 of 280. A quick reference GDP chart was created. And that's a, that's a DO2I, right? A yes, DO2 yes. Index. In, indexed, yes, indexed. 
um, a quick reference GDP chart was created based on the derived formula requiring only the patient's BSA, hemoglobin level, and then you can determine your safe minimum flow rate. The proposed tool allows any cardiac surgery center to adopt this GDP technique even in the absence of instantaneous DO2 monitoring equipment. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, I think it is. And if you want to see how they derived and they had to make a couple of assumptions, um, read the article. It's uh, really short. Again, very informative. But here's, first off, here's their what they called the VA, uh, VA Boston Quick Reference Tool for Goal-Directed Perfusion. And you can see running along the top here, you've got your, uh, oh, I don't want to do that. Hold on just a second. What are you trying to accomplish? I just want the dots. So just use my finger. Oh, just use your finger. Yeah. Okay. Push you, and hold. There we go. So we've got the hemoglobin levels here. So you, you see they're starting at 7 and they go all the way up to 11. And then over here, we've got our BSA, we've got our tiny person going all the way up to three, okay? And you can just match them up and say, oh, I have a hemoglobin of eight, and my BSA is two, my absolute minimum flow would be 4.9, okay? Wow. All right, now, don't wow yet, here's the wow. Here's a comparison, if you were using BSA alone, um, and uh, our cardiac index alone compared to goal-directed perfusion. So, um, tell me a BSA that you want to look at. 2.2. Okay, so we're going to look at 2.2. Typical patient for us. All right, and what's the hemoglobin that you uh, want to say that they have? Well, what they're going to have versus what, okay, so let's say 7. Okay, so 2.2 and 7. 6.2 would be... Mm -hmm. Use your, the, yeah, you have push and hold with your finger. I don't think so. There we go. Mm -hmm. 6.2 would be what we're supposed to flow wow. versus, let's go over here, 2.2. Uh, uh, hold on. There we go. And if we went with a 2. Point, let's just say we were really flowing good and we went ahead and went with 2.4 cardiac index, you can see that 5.3 would be what we're flowing versus 6.2. Mm -hmm. So, so it's full liter. It's a huge difference. A liter, full liter of flow. That is a lot. That is a big difference. Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. huge difference. And I think, it's, I think it's worth considering. Again, you know, um, that's the end of my slide. So, well, we can go ahead and start talking about some things. No, I think that's very, I think that's very, that's very interesting because, you know, there is an argument. I mean, that we, you know, there's, there's, there's enough flow. Not enough flow. And too much flow. And luxurious flow. Well, yeah. we'll call it luxurious okay. as opposed to too much. We'll say luxurious. Now, it becomes, luxurious becomes too much when you are interfering, again, with the reason you're there, which is the surgical procedure. So right. then it becomes too much. Yeah. So there's, there's enough, not enough, luxurious, and too much. So it's actually four, I think, categories. Yeah. Um, does that, is that assuming, and that, going back to that slide you just showed, is that assuming, um, is that assuming 37 degrees? No. Um, hold on. And what I temperature will. is that assuming? Yeah. So let me see. Let me get into that. So, um, mm -hmm. let me find this real quick. Yeah, um, it's that one. Yeah, but hold on. I got it. 
read where they talk about it. Limitations of this tool, arterial blood. Uh, bleed the reasonable. Where did they discuss that? I know I read where they discussed that. Maybe it was, yeah, I think in this one that actually is a, assuming normothermic. Um, right, so we're assuming normothermia. And mm -hmm. I do think that we do more normothermic surgery now versus hypothermic. I mean, we don't cool as much, and if we do, we drift, unless we're anticipating a, a longer than normal pump run. Well, and if you're only drifting to, let's say, 34 degrees, mm -hmm. and then when it's time to warm, you know, there you still got a, a, a fair amount of the surgery left, depending yes. on the speed of your surgeon, that you would be at a normothermic temperature. Mm -hmm. Well, the size of your patient, how long do you want to warm for? Do you want to have complete rewarming or incomplete rewarming, right. et cetera? So, so let me introduce some folks, okay? So, uh, and then, because I have a lot more questions, I want to add some additional people into this discussion. So, immediately to my right is Ramsha Asmat. She is a uh, she has a bachelor's degree and is a clinical perfusionist. She is licensed in the state of Texas, but she has not completed her, her American board certification yet. Uh, she actually received her bachelor's in general studies with a minor in biology, with minors in biology, chemistry, and health sciences from Texas Tech University in 2018. Recently graduated with a master's degree in cardiovascular perfusion from Rush University in 2021. Congratulations on that graduation. She received extensive training from Advocate Christ Hospital in Chicago in uh, Theta Care Regional Medical Center in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Ascension in St. John Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. The training she received, did you know Dr. Rivers? Did you ever meet him? No. Did you ever hear of him while you were there? I did. You did, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the training she received gave her expert experience in the field of perfusion and grew her love for this field. Ramsh also enjoys outdoor activities such as biking. Got to watch out for the bears, though, because they just, that's a really bad deal. Um, and hiking, it's again, watch out for the bears. And a great passion for traveling. She also loves shopping, dancing, and Min loves dancing. So you got somebody that could dance with it. And uh, painting as a hobby. So, so a little bit of a background on Ramsha, which... I'd like to, to discuss a little bit. And you may have to turn her volume up. She's got a very soft, low voice. So you may want to monitor her on this one, okay? She's low. and uh, uh, But you've got a big heart, okay? Low voice, big heart, okay? Um, but Ramsha called me several years ago wanting to shadow. She had an interest in perfusion. And, man, we were busy. We're always busy. And she was so persistent. And finally, I said, okay, yes, Ramsha, we will find a place for you to go and shadow. She went and shadowed at St. Luke's, I believe it was, with Dr. Matoria. I think Mike Brown was one of those folks. I can't remember who the other people were that you shadowed Clark. with. And Clark. Clark. Mm -hmm. And did I ever meet, did I meet you during that time? Or we were supposed to meet and I couldn't? We never were able We to never meet. met. We no. never did connect. No, but Anyway, so, um, but you did, in fact, get into training at Rush. You went to a great program. You were trained fantastically. And, uh, and then you uh, called back 
and said, okay, I'm, I'm graduating. I'm ready to come to work for you now. <laughs> and, dude, there was just a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, there was a no-brainer at that point in time, okay? Yeah. So, so, so excited about it. So this conversation today about DO2 and extraction rates and everything like that, yesterday was your first experience at changing out an ECMO circuit on a patient who is 100% ECMO dependent. And I think, do you see a lot of what we talked about yesterday and the considerations that we, and the maneuvers that we did, mm -hmm. uh, do you see the relationship between all of that with what we did here? Yes. So tell us about that. So yesterday was my first time changing mm -hmm. out an ECMO circuit. And this is my first Where time. You were, the, you were the changer. You were the boss. Yes. I was, I was your assistant. Yes. So um, before going in, we did, like, talked about what we were going to do. And uh, some of the maneuvers that we considered was decreasing her temperature to decrease the metabolic demand, putting her on full vent support so she can... Like, it will give us that time. So, so she do a little bit of preconditioning. Pre yeah. And then some other factors that we thought about was giving her heparin so she, her um, Avalon cannulation would not clot. Mm -hmm. Because we're running very, we're running basically very low anticoagulation mm -hmm. to no anticoagulation and certainly concerned about that cannula, the blood yeah. sitting in it, coagulating. And then what about, I think we used something else to help not only with her comfort, but it would also reduce metabolic demand. What did we do? We sedated her. Used some additional sedation, right. And, uh, and then, you know, and then the three keys to success for that whole procedure is, are what? I don't think I taught you this yesterday. Yeah, no, you did yeah. not. Mm -hmm. First is preparation. Mm -hmm. Second is more preparation. preparation. Third, more preparation. Is more preparation. Well, be prepared. Yes, I think you could even expand on that a little bit and say, you know, part of the preparation is making a plan. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important parts of uh, really anything that we do, but especially in an ECMO circuit change out, mm -hmm. is talking about, yeah. okay, what are we going to do that's going to help us? Which you guys did. You know, you were thinking. Instead of having her start in her normal state, which is, although stable for her, um, would quickly lead to a deficit, let's go ahead and give her luxurious oxygen supply, right? Because mm -hmm. she's down off the vent um, or very minimal dip, uh, vent settings. And then that way you ha she has a little bit more um, oxygen to extract from while she's going to be, you know, without ECMO flow. Second thing I think, too, which is really important is... Um, talking about it, right? You both talked about your roles. You talked about who was going to do what. Um, and I think that um, that's so important when you're in, under a time crunch. And of course, changing an ECMO circuit on someone who has very minimal lung capacity um, for contributing to their um, oxygen levels, it's key. Mm -hmm. You want to do it as quickly as possible. And so, you know, planning, and then um, uh, preparing, I guess, and then planning and then talking about it. Those would be my Full three things mm -hmm. for uh, success, just kind of expanding a little bit on what you said. Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I'm curious to ask if I can, 
Um, because you know, you you are you you actually give me a lot of energy because you're you're me forty some odd years ago. Now a lot better looking version of what I was even forty something years ago. But you know, regardless, all right. You, that enthusiasm that you have, that youthful exuberance, which can be, for some older people, annoying, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, I've been here, done that, I don't really, you know, you do find apathy. I'm sure you saw it in your training with some people who just didn't care, they were yeah. doing a job. Yeah. But you have a real passion, and that helps me continue to have the enthusiasm that I have. And so I really find it enjoyable, okay? Mm -hmm. But I want to know from you how you felt. And I remember the I remember it very, very well. You had the clamps, you had the scissors, and you had just put the clamp, the tube, the tubing in the clamp, but you hadn't yet squeezed it shut. And I looked at you and I said, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Because once you do this, you're committed. You're committed. There's no going back. How did that feel to know that you now have to do this? So when I first um, told you that I want to do this, I was very calm. I was very calm and uh, pumping all these cases in the past with difficult surgeons and difficult procedures. I have we don't always, have difficult surgeons here. Yeah, so true. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> it, I was always calm. So I was like, you know, I got this. I'm going to be very calm. I can do it. I was very excited. Did everything in the morning when you came. I talked to you. I was very calm. We prepped. I was calm. But when... Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah. But when... We actually, you were like, are you ready? I was like, this is the time. When I made my first, like when I clamped the Venus line first, I started to like, my heart rate boosted. I was yeah. so nervous, but I was like, I can't stop. I no, 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 you're right, you're right. You passed go. You can't stop. You can't go, stop. So I was like, I got to do this. And I remember my hands were just like shaking and I knew this patient's life is in my hands. So I was just like, I got to continue on. So I really don't know how I was able to do it, make those connections, but I was like, I got to be calm. That's all I had to say. I was mm -hmm. like, this patient has to survive. Mm -hmm. Well, you did it. Ex you did actually the, 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 the mechanical part of everything that you did um was uh was exquisite i mean actually you know you i could tell i could sense a little bit of those nerves but you controlled it really well yeah um what i found interesting i think i told you this was you know our tubing clamps have three clicks mm -hmm. one two three some of them have four but most of them just have three clicks mm -hmm. and you know you only need one click mm -hmm. but when she clamped it and this was each one of them she, like, clamped it, like, to the 10th. <laughs> it was not popping off. No, no. Well, I was worried that it was never coming off again. Okay, a little bit concerned because the harder, the, the more clicks, the harder it is to open it back. And you do have to open it to get the flow back going, all right? So I thought that was very interesting. I was just going to drag John into this. He sits down, then he leaves. And then he's he gone. He sits down, then he's gone. He sits down, and he's gone. 
Here he is, John. Hurricane John. Can you bring Hurricane John into this? Hurricane, hey, Hurricane John. John, you're you're in Key West, aren't you? Can you hear me okay? Yes, the MediWeb right. Studios in Key West. Key West, Florida, first inaugural broadcast from Key West, Florida. Wow. Good, good. Asked to participate um, in a uh, in uh, the conference that they were having in Europe, in Spain, and I just. In Brazil, Brazil I'm Brazil. sorry. Why do I say? Why did I say Spain? Because we have friends um, in Spain too. Yeah, and I just couldn't. We just couldn't do it, John. We were just so busy. Things were just too much going on, and uh, I felt so bad that we we ended up. I've never been. I've never said no to somebody, and uh, I, I I had to this time. It's just we we just had another episode of not just acuity going up and. ECMO and cases and all of this stuff, but then, you know, even though we hire people, we have for a whole variety of reasons, people are people, we have lives. Yeah. And so we had staffing considerations and complications all going on at the same time. It just got crazy over here. What are you, what are you seeing in Orlando? Well, first off, are you safe? What's the weather like? Well, we had uh, one little tree down. It's a beautiful sunny day. Yesterday was mostly... A lot of wind and rain, and um, you know we. Well, how is it sunny? And how is it sunny with wind and rain? Yesterday, today. Yesterday. Is oh. Okay. Today yeah. it's sunny. It's always the best day right before the hurricane. Beautiful, and right after the hurricane is beautiful because the the skies are completely cleared out. There's mm -hmm. nothing behind them. Just mm -hmm. open blue skies. So it's great. But um, no, it was just a tropical storm for for us down here. That's really nothing. It's really mm -hmm. nothing when it's a tropical storm, even mm -hmm. if it's a hurricane one or two. When it gets above two, yeah, you get a little concerned, but a lot of rain, a little bit of wind. Other than that, it was uh, over in about eight hours. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, good, I, good. I assumed you weathered the storm at work. You're always working, right? Oh, I was down here. I, I've had the last couple of days off, so I came in. I came down uh, pretty much right as the storm was coming in, and it was actually no, no problem getting in, so um, hanging out at the, at the new place. Good oh, for you. Wonderful. Well, good for you. Key West. That's a gravity. Great. You want to start a heart surgery program down there or an ECMO program? Yeah, sure. They, um, you know, um, because the closest heart program is uh, three and a half hours away in Miami, the county here is called Monroe County. They air flight you for free to the nearest uh, facility if they don't have the, um, the service here. So they've done that for many, many years down here. Wow, outstanding. That's fantastic. That That's actually a pretty decent thing. Who pays for that? I mean, I, th I think it's a collaboration with the county. If you go into the ER here and you're, you have a you know severe heart attack and you need immediate you know intervention, we don't have intervention here of any type. We don't have uh, angioplasty or stent or certainly cardiac surgery. The hospitals here are very small community hospitals. And so you get uh, either uh, ground transport if, if there's enough time for that or air flighted to the closest hospital in Miami, and I've, I've, I've always been told there's no charge for that. Wow, that's outstanding. So what did you think about all of this? Uh, Tammy's talk, my talk, uh, were you able to watch it before you uh, joined? No, I actually just sat in. I, uh, I didn't realize it was going to have to be so early, so a um, little bit of a miscommunication with David, but I just, uh, just turned on here in the last 10 minutes. Uh, oh, okay, I'm good. Glad to meet your I'm glad to meet your guest there, though. I heard bits and pieces of, um, of, um, of her introduction. Yeah. And she, um, 
presently trying to go to Perfusion School, or is she a graduate? No, she's a graduate. She's, oh, she's, okay. She has a provisional license. She's working. She's able to manage patients independently. Um, no, we got ourselves a, we, we, we hit a home run on this deal. <laughs> oh, I see that. Yeah, she um, sounded like she has a couple of uh, various degrees uh, behind her besides, besides perfusion now. Yeah, she's actually intelligent, unlike me, <laughs> right? So, uh, so, so we, our topic today was DO2. And uh, just to kind of catch you up real quick, because I'm curious about your thoughts, but measuring DO2 as a perfusion um, uh, metric for adequacy of perfusion versus index and SVO2. And what they found was that you had, so basically goal-directed perfusion using DO2, DO2I, and oxygen extraction rate uh, indexed as well, that having a DO2 of, I think you talked about it once before, above, I think it was 280, um, 280 or above, and an extraction rate of uh, 25% or less was uh, demonstrated to improve um, outcomes in terms, especially in AKI. So do you want to elaborate, because I know you know a lot about that. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, that's a fabulous topic, and I've talked about it several times on, on your show and even on some um, of my, as you know, Joe, I've been doing online uh, master's program here. I'm almost finished, and I actually did, we actually had that topic come up a few times in our, in our master's course as well where we had to talk about it. But I really believe it's a paradigm shift that, that needs to be happening. I think it is happening on a lot of hospitals. It's slow to sweep the country. We need to get away from our calculated flows of body surface area or weight and just looking at the SVO2 coming down the venous line and assuming you have adequate perfusion. That's been demonstrated by many studies that you really need to be focusing on your DO, DO2I, your deliver mm -hmm. of oxygen index, of course, mm -hmm. because then you're doing it according to right. the patient's size, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and above 272, some people use 280 as a safety margin for that, but 272 and above has been demonstrated. Uh, 272 as a milliliters of oxygen per minute delivered um, per meter squared, I guess it is, the um, uh, DO2I. And, and you have a tremendous decrease in all of your ischemic-related injuries. And, of course, acute kidney injury is, is at the top of the list because it seems to be one of the more sensitive ones to any type of, uh, you know, lacking of delivery of oxygen. And um, we, we really, as a field, I think we're slowly evolving that way, and I'm hoping that the newer generations, um, when we wake up some years from now, that'll be the way everybody's calculating their perfusion flows. Yeah, well, you know, and, and you bring up a very good point. Um, you know, the challenges are in, you know, where we've been keeping our hemoglobins and um, how we're cannulating. You know, we haven't changed cannulation in forever. And so, you know, the, and the kidney is just so uber-sensitive to hypoxia and, and lack of good, you know, perfusion and good flow. Um, I have a curious uh, question for you, if I yeah. can, Ramsha, since you just recently finished your training. What are they teaching you in, uh, in the field now with your clinical rotation sites? What are you seeing in terms of measurement of perfusion adequacy? So my first site where um, in Chicago, they did not look at DO2. They just looked at cardiac index, and it was a standard with every single patient. It did was, you continuously measure SVO2? Yes. 
They did SpO2 measurements. Was there a low, a, low met, a low number that you wouldn't accept? That I wasn't able to pick up. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was, I was not able to pick up my, I was pretty much there to observe. Okay. Yeah, so um, I tried picking up as much like perfusion related stuff as possible, their measurements, what they look at. Mm -hmm. and so they didn't have like, for example, we track uh, quality as a quality indicator, um, uh, SBO2 of less than 65, that goes into a metric uh, for a quality report. So um, you, you weren't able to uh, uh, speak with them about that, no. what their, mm -hmm. their low measurement What was. about other places? Yeah. So my second place, they did have um, a CD, CDI monitor mm -hmm. in. And so they did look at their DO2s. Mm -hmm. And then my third site was where they actually taught me about DO2. And they looked at, um, like, he was the one who pretty much, that clinical site manager, pretty much taught me um, monitoring DO2 was very critical because you can just flow at the cardiac index, but are you sure you're providing enough flow or are you providing way too much flow? He, you, you know you can give him a shout out. He uh, might be watching. Oh, okay. So who was your clinical manager there? Jeff Chorus. Jeff. Jeff. Jeffrey Chorus. Um, he was at Detroit. Good job, Detroit. Jeff. Yeah, great job. Yeah. He was the one who really taught me about DO2s. We had a sheet that every time I would pump a case, I would look at that. It was like fit in their computers. So, and looking at it by like their hemoglobin level, then we will decide what flow we need to you know, pick mm -hmm. up. And mm -hmm. we will also look at their urine output to indicate if we're providing adequacy of perfusion. Yeah, and is, is John, is urine output um, a, a good indicator of renal perfusion necessarily? So I've, no. I've, I've never yeah. considered, it's not? No, no I didn't no. think so. I know, so why is there such emphasis on, um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's old school. I it's think it's old, school. old habits. Yeah. Old but habits. I mean, we're still. Do you still record your pump urine on your? Well, that's for your record? INO. That's just well, for your INO. But is really, it really nobody's you? nobody's using that. They're using total. Um, they're using total urine during the operative procedure for the INO. They're not using our pump urine, but yet I'm still recording it on my record. Yeah, the, uh, Joe, you're right. It's, it's very old school, and it's not necessarily anything terribly wrong with it, especially back, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, because we said to ourselves, well, how do we know we're perfusing the kidney well enough? Well, if you're making urine, then it must be good enough, because it's good enough to be making urine. So, therefore, we need to make urine on pump. And that's basically how it came about, you know, yeah. because we didn't have the uh, delivery of oxygen. We didn't have any way, and I don't think we still do, of actually probing the uh, renal art art arterial flow, as we mm -hmm. talked about, Joe, on this show before, mm -hmm. to see, you know, what is our actual flow going down the renal artery. So years ago, we said, well, if we're making urine, then the kidneys are functioning. They must be getting adequate perfusion. Um, that's, you know, been many years ago, and we've since learned that there's many, many things that affect urine output uh, other than adequate perfusion. And you can have adequate perfusion and little urine output, and you can have inadequate perfusion and still have urine output. Yeah, and mm -hmm. have high, high, sometimes high urine output. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so so mm, I, I wanted to talk. I, you know, a, a great topic, if you want to talk about it a little bit more here today for a few more minutes or another time, is we should ask ourselves, what is wrong with monitoring SVO2? That would be a very interesting 
back and forth, I think, because it's not everything wrong with it, but mm -hmm. there's many things that would give you a high SVO2 that would give you a false sense of security that would, you know, a lot of people using it and doesn't necessarily mean you have adequate perfusion because, you know, Joe, we're not a fan of uh, phenylephrine on this show. Right. And certainly I'm not. Uh, and if vasoconstriction, oh, I lose you guys. Okay. If you have vasoconstriction and shunting around the capillaries, your SVO2 will be nice and high. But yes. you're not perfusing yes. on the capillary level. Yes, but you could also be delivering adequate oxygen, but if it's not flowing, you, so even DO2 in that same argument. So it becomes what do we measure? How much should we measure? What's realistic to measure? For example, we just talked about the microvision scan earlier in the program. Mm -hmm. You missed that, which is a device that can be used sublingually at a ridge of capillaries that is very close to the surface. And you can actually see the microcirculation in process. Do we still have that device? I do. It's they incredible. Were, they asked for it back. I have it packaged up, but they never sent anyone to pick it up. And mm. I've sort of lost communication with them. So it was supposed to be sent to somebody in Greece or mm. somewhere in like our it's Turkey. Really I'm not sure neat. which. But I still have the device. I almost hate giving it back, but I do have it packaged up. It's ready to go. Um, I don't know what the what's what. It, it's hard to say what's happened with COVID over in Europe. You know, because yeah. they were, of course, uh, I think they were Dutch, right? They were yeah. from Amsterdam. Yeah, right? Amsterdam. Um, so a lot of things like that. But it's very interesting to see this. And so you're right. You can have a great SVO2, but you can also have a DO2 index of 290. But if it's not going through yeah. the capillary bed because right. of perfusion deficit, what difference that, does that make? So do we measure lactates enough? You know, some devices will measure it, but of course you're only getting a snapshot, right? Our perfusion runs are an hour to two hours. If you have a really long perfusion run, certainly you may have enough time to see it. All of these things, including lactate, creatinine, any metabolite, can be so grossly affected by hemodilution. Right. And then how are you measuring your hemoglobin in order to get your SAO2 to know what your DO2 is? And can you believe that measurement? Well, and most of is, the point of care devices that we're going to be using when we're on pump are, um, you know, they're they're not very accurate correct. for exact hemoglobin measurements. Correct. You know, it's plus yes. or minus two. I think is most of the devices, yeah. and you know, seven to nine. Just going back to that. Now, if you're using coaxymetry, it's much better. Okay. That's a gold standard. If yes. you're using electrical impedance, mm -hmm. like let's say the Abbott iStat device, right. okay, that uses electrical impedance to measure the hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And it's just horribly inaccurate. You have to tell it whether you're on pump or off pump, diluted or not diluted. The more dilution, the more inaccurate it is. But coaxymetry is a gold standard. Mm -hmm. And so I think the gem may use the new gem. Yeah, the new gem uses does. coaxymetry. Mm -hmm. The Siemens Rapid Point yes. uses coaxymetry. The, the radiometer e device but uses the coaxymetry. But the epoch does not, right? No, the epoch that's a, uses. That's equivalent to iStat. Yes, it is equally inaccurate. But, I don't like the epoch. I mean, but for 
trending, of course, it's fine. But when you're doing these calculations, because there's already assumptions made, you can't have assumptions in every step. Right. Because your end result is not going to be nearly as accurate as you um, would want it to be for sure. Correct. You Agreed. Know? And then, you know, there's all these arguments about, you know, viscosity and hypothermia and what is the optimal hematocrit for that and all of these things. I, I, I you know, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I do think that we don't measure enough of the things we should be measuring and sometimes measure too much of the things that are probably not either helpful or are reliable. Reliability is a huge factor, I think, in what we do. Can we truly rely on these numbers? So should we be measuring, um, uh, 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 for example, transcranial Doppler? Should we be looking at middle cerebral artery, the MCA flow for every procedure that we do to make sure we are actually perfusing the brain? Does cerebral oximetry, is that a, a good alternative to that? And is I it reliable? It is. Um, well, yeah. there's a lot I mean, of variability in that in just setting it up correctly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you But there's no variability to TCD. There's no right. variability. There's either flow or there's not. Well, but you're also <laughs> talking about devices that require, um, that are more invasive, that require... Well, they're not more invasive. They're just more cumbersome. Okay. More, more difficult to use. And require more setup. So how much more... You like the way I do that? Yeah. I'm very specific. Adding... How much more are we going to add to every procedure that we have to do, mm -hmm. right? Right, exactly. Yes, that's exactly. That's a very. How much are people going to in the room tolerate? The surgeon wants to get the case started. Anesthesia wants to get the case started. Well, the all hospital, of us want to get the case the, done. The hospital wants to get the case done. They need to do the next case. Yes, there could be an urgent case coming in, and we're adding all of these things to it. So, how right. much is enough, and what is not enough? of this monitoring and that we need to do. And let's not kid ourselves. Time is money. Yeah. And all of this technology costs money. It does. So you're making a procedure that should be three hours, four hours. That's an enormous amount of money, money in an operating room. And you want all of these fancy devices, which are going to cost us money well, to buy and maintain. And train the individuals to use them. All of that. And interpret them. Correct. To make sense. Right. And have enough cases to be able to be competent at that. Because, you know, now that every, every hospital practically does heart surgery and everything else, mm -hmm. that means you're, you know, you're diluting in these community hospitals, you're diluting the amount of exposure that clinicians are getting to use certain devices. I mean, um, you know, used to you were a heart center and your, your anesthesiologists that came in there were CV anesthesia. And uh, there was no question that they were getting enough TEE experience, for mm -hmm. example, to stay certified. But now things are so dilute. Let's say you're at a place that only does 150 hearts. Well, you can't have one surge, uh, one anesthesiologist do all of those hearts. It's just never going to work uh, for scheduling purposes, of course. And so then you're having to dilute it out. And then next thing you know, you only have one certified TEE anesthesiologist. 
because, mm-hmm. you know, they require so many to maintain their certification. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, that personally, I think that's a problem, too, with, mm-hmm. where, you know, every hospital shouldn't get to do everything. Man, that's an argo. Oh, that's a good, that's a good discussion. <laughs> so are you a believer in centralization of care? Well, I don't think it needs to be only med center. I mean, I'm not saying that. No, not med center, just centralization. Um, so I think somewhat to a degree, I think it's a good idea. You mm-hmm. get clinicians who, I mean, it's like ECMO Center. Think about it like that. John's hospital that he works at is an ECMO Center. There are ECMO experts that work there. Mm-hmm. We work at a, to a lesser degree, but we have some of our hospitals that we practice in are considered ECMO Centers mm-hmm. outside of the medical center, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and they do that well. We have other hospitals. Three of them within walking distance of each other. Yes. And if more makes you better, should all three of them have the ability to do that? And if not, which one should? I don't know. How does that get decided? I don't know how it gets decided. But I can tell you that I think all of us could easily agree that the ones that we don't do ECMO at frequently, that aren't an ECMO center, if you will, um, they do it very infrequently. Even if they provide excellent care for this, you know, solitary patient that they got this year that was ECMO. We're not talking about COVID. Let's just say, you know, a normal... Aspiration pneumonia. Yeah, whatever. Normal year. They're still not at the level that they should be to care for that patient. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Because they don't care for those patients. Mm -hmm. Agreed. That is such a very interesting point. John, you're in an ECMO center. A real, okay. a real, a real expo center. So, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you just two questions, okay? One is, do you believe in centralization? And again, when I say centralization, it doesn't mean that only in Miami where the medical center is, that they're the only ones that do, let's just use ECMO since ECMO is such a big thing for us and all that kind of stuff. But it could be anything. It could be spine surgery i don't care what it is it doesn't matter um but areas around the country where let's say orlando do you have other places that do ecmo adult ecmo in the orlando area um we have we are the only adult ecmo center in orlando now within about 25 to 40 miles just outside of Orlando, we have a couple community hospitals that are that are decent that do some, and lots, a lot of times they'll send them to us if they think it's going to be a problem. Of course, another hour, two hours away in the bigger towns on the coast, you have ECMOs. But let me let me answer it this way: In my opinion, if you're not doing at least 25 ECMOs per year, you probably ought to. There ought to be some. There is no rule. You could do one a year if you want to, mm-hmm. but that is that would be my line in the sand if I was in charge of something to say if you can't at least do 25 ECMOs a year, you probably need to be a pack and ship type of place, right? Because that's not even um, one every two weeks. But what do you do when um, the when what do you do when the ship when you you you're happy to pack them and ship them, but there's no place to ship them to. Well, no beds? Should, you is that what you mean? Yeah. No room at well, the end. That's part of your ECMO plan. That's part of your ECMO plan. When you went out and bought the equipment and hired your people to, to run the ECMO, mm-hmm. you had to have a, a, a plan of where are we going to send our way too difficult patients. So mm-hmm. you shouldn't be just propping up an ECMO program if you can't figure out what you're going to do well, to get... Uh, 
at minimum have a relationship established with an ECMO center or centers that you uh, are able to contact when you get in those types of situations. Mm. So let me give you an example. Now, I know sometimes they're full you and example. you have to wait a little bit, but if you already have that relationship established, yeah. then you, know, you should be at the top of the list. I agree. But let me, let, me, let me throw this out at you. And I'm going to get your opinion, too. I'm not sure. You, are, you, are you chomping at the bit to say something? Because if you are, I'm going to let you go. No. Okay. So <laughs> let's say you're in Alexandria, Louisiana, a place that I know very well. Mm -hmm. There are two major hospitals there. Mm -hmm. Neither one of those hospitals, neither one, provide ECMO at all. No option. No option. Yeah. You do not have that as an option there. If you drive north from here, from Houston, not too terribly far, you have Lufkin and you have Nacogdoches, or Lufkin, Neck and Nowhere, depending on how you want to say it. They, neither, none of those hospitals up there have ECMO as an option. You go east not too terribly far from here, there's a hospital that does heart surgery. Now, these hospitals do heart surgery. They're not just, you know, little mini yeah. cl uh, minute clinics, okay? These are hospitals that do heart surgery. So what happens when you arrive there? There's no place to get you to. You continue to deteriorate and you don't have that as an option, and now you are too sick to transfer. So does it just literally become the luck of the draw that you showed up at the right place for whatever your problem is mm -hmm. that has the ability to, the experience to do it well, and the interest to do it, for the particular problem that you are now having. Yes, sometimes it's just luck. It's just luck. It I is. mean. And is that right? Is that right? Is it right? Is it wrong? What's, is it well, fair? Is it equitable? It's... We're talking about, you know, this is the, this is the world of, of equity, right? Right. So is that really fair? I mean, I don't think fair is an appropriate word to use because there is no way to make that fair. You can't have everything everywhere. There aren't enough people to maintain training or to the ones that maintain training to, to spread them all out across a country as large as ours. I mean, mm -hmm. that's one of the things is uh, being a country as large as we are. We have a lot of uh, resources and choices. However, when you have geography as large as ours, you can't say that it doesn't matter where you go. We're too far apart. Mm -hmm. And so some of it's just luck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, uh, if, if, if you had a dime for, um, for every time uh, a patient from, you know, travels to Orlando for, for the vacationing for the theme parks and is walking around uh, one of the theme parks, has a heart attack, gets lucky enough to be rushed to a, one of our hospitals or our hospital has to go on ECMO and we save the day, whereas they would have come from a small town somewhere where they didn't have the capability. In fact, there's many hospitals not far from us that don't have any capability, so they call us and if we can't take the patient because we're full, 
I'm sure we all know what ends up happening to that patient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is the luck of the draw. There's a lot of luck of the draw in this because you just can't be everywhere, all things to all people. And you could be at a very lucky spot and you could be in a very unlucky spot. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, well, we, I'm sorry. And you know, countries that are smaller or regions that are smaller than us have different options. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why uh, the ECPR works so well in Paris small area, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's why they would likely be able to implement something like that in some of the European countries is because they're so much smaller. Yes. We can't even do that in Houston, much less Texas. Yes. How would that work? Agreed. You know? I agree. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and we sort of shifted gears, but I want to talk about lactate and creatinine. Mm. Uh, but it's going to also include hemoglobin. Okay. Um, it is very easy to mask a hyperlactatemia, which you were talking about, the HL that HL. you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Very easy to mask that, especially when you're on cardiopulmonary bypass. Because if you uh, add 500, 700, a liter, you give Del Nido, it doesn't make any difference which, what it is. However you want to give the volume, you give volume, that volume that you gave will dilute out whatever your lactate or your creatinine or whatever metabolite you were measuring that isn't contained in that fluid will dilute it and artificially make it low. And that happens all of the time. So timing of when we check these things and can we actually measure lactate continuously? Should we have and be demanding devices that measure these values continuously and be accurate? You know, you look at technological advances in cardiac surgery and in medicine, in critical care medicine, and they're phenomenal. But in perfusion, yeah, we have some nice-looking heart-lung machines with some neat computers, and maybe we have some good, yeah. we have some good continuous uh, 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 EMRs or our electronic charting uh, devices, things like that. But our ability to actually measure the adequacy of our perfusion, everything we do as far as I can figure out, is inferred. Yeah. Everything, all of our ability to measure is an inference based on some snippet of information that we get a little, a little, it's like, it's like having, a, having one of those movies, like the old style movies that were, they would turn the pages, you know, real fast, and oh. that would be mm -hmm. whatever that's called. And we just basically, it runs, we stop it right there, we look at it, and then it continues to go while we're looking at it. By the time we changed. got it, yeah, right. By the time we get the result, from the time we sent it, all kinds of things have happened in between there. And let's use albumin as an example and hemoglobin. So let's say you run a hemoglobin and it comes back 8.8.0. Just comes back eight. But you're having volume problems. You know the patient has third space. You know you have those problems. So you give the patient 100 grams of albumin. 
Okay, so you gave that volume, right? And that 100 grams of that, now let's say you gave it in, in, and it was 100 cc's. So that 100 cc's probably isn't going to affect that hemoglobin very much, if at all. But every gram of hemoglobin draws back 18 cc's every gram from of the inner, albumin. albumin from the interstitium. So now you gave that, let's say you, 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 you drew your lab here, gave that, you have an 1800 cc difference mm -hmm. in volume now in your intravascular space that was not there before. Yeah, but that are is you going to alter a lot of things? A hundred's a lot. I mean, uh, but I just used it as an example because the numbers were easy to add up. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do less than that. Yeah. So let's say 50 grams. You give 50 grams, it's going to be 900 cc's. Yeah. You give 25 grams, that's going to be 450 cc's. But 450 our, cc's can make a big difference. Yeah, but typically, aren't you giving more like 12 grams? No. You, no, if I'm going to give albumin, I'm going to give 25 grams or more. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, you can do that on pump. Yeah. And you can do that in the ICU if you are on CRRT. But mm -hmm. if you have a patient who is grossly... Um, hypoalbuminemic, and you have massive, grossly edematous, uh, 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 mm -hmm. and you need to get that organ dysfunction is, is occurring, and you need to get that fluid off that patient quickly, you have to be very careful with albumin because you give it, and if you have no means of removing the fluid, you'll put them into heart failure. Mm -hmm. So that's a big problem. Now, yeah. on pump, it's not as much of a problem because you have an open reservoir and it just fills the reservoir up. Right. But uh, there is no, you know, there's really, there is no toxic level of albumin. Mm -hmm. And so I don't give little bits of albumin. If I'm going to give albumin, I'm going to give them albumin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that brings to a point that how many of us monitor our albumin level and our total protein level on bypass. In other words, our COP, basically. If, mm -hmm. Right, your COP. So if your COP is, let's just say, grossly low, right, and you do give albumin and it's still below normal, you may not draw over that 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 1,500 cc's out of the patient. You still may be, um, you know, your COP may still be too low. On the other hand, if you had a normal or high albumin level and you gave albumin, you would probably draw back over into intravascularly uh, a lot more fluid. So not knowing, like you said, Joe, we're inferring a lot of things. We, we, we can't possibly test everything and get the results back quick enough would be my guess as far as why we don't monitor COP and albumin and stuff on pump, right? It would probably take 45 minutes to get the result back from the lab at least. Right. Well, no, actually you can measure it if you know the albumin and the globulin uh, which you can, you know, and really that's such a low contribution. Really, the albumin is probably good enough. And you use our app, you can um, go to, let's see, let me find COP. There it is right there. So uh, if you know your globulin, uh, let's just say it's two, and, you know, that's not going to change too much, and you could get that preoperatively or whatever, and your albumin level is 4.2, which is the greatest contributor. Your COP is 25.9. It's right there in the app. So you John, can measure you COP immediately. So anybody out there that doesn't have this app, I need I to sell 1 million copies. And I'm retiring, okay? We have a long way to go, 
but I'm working on it. Okay? Do we have a ticker? One app at a time. No, it's too low. You, it's not. It's not yet measuring. If you have a million, if you have the, if the, if the, if the range is a million, you can't yet see it on the bottom. Okay. I want a ticker on the back wall. We're gonna have <laughs> ticker every time someone, you know, it rolls. Rolls. It rolls. Yeah. Hey Joe. Hey Joe. That could be one of the winning prizes on the on the on Tammy, Tammy's wheel as you win the app. You know. Yes, you I could need win. to sell a million of them, John. Okay, they're getting T-shirts and ball caps hey, wait, and cups. While we're talking about T-shirts, John, I, I want to circle back to something you said because I think this deserves to be on a T-shirt. He said, oh, two million copies." No, no, we are not a fan of phenylephrine on this show. Yes, that needs to be a T-shirt. I agree. Let let that guy know. Yeah. Okay. Let yeah. that guy know we need that. And then we got to have something witty, you know, uh, uh, about the kidney. But you know, I'm not like we're 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 team kidney or or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, I think that that's you bring up a very good <laughs> you bring up yet another really good point is that we really don't you know when we talk about perfusion, you know, generally speaking, it's really I I you know you have to be in really bad situation to wipe out the gut, right? I mean, a mesenteric infarct or something like that. But, you know, basically ischemic bowel is not typically a problem that we have during cardiopulmonary bypass. What are the problems we really do have? You know, limb ischemia is not really a problem for cardiopulmonary bypass. We want to protect the heart. We have cardioplegia for that, right? The lungs, they have their bronchial flow and bronchial circulation, and they seem to do just fine. Sometimes they're a little wet. We have lung problems later, but it's usually secondary to some other issue, not a lack of good flow through the bronchial circulation. The brain and the kidneys. I know. We have to... The two organs that are most negatively impacted by perfusion... And we don't really spend a whole lot of time measuring it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, or like we don't said, even think know, about the consequences of the things that we're doing for one to the other. We're using that phenylephrine because we need our pressure up because we want good flow to the brain. Forget about the kidney. Right. Or we're not doing that because we're protecting the kidney and we're not thinking about uh, alternative methods to also make sure we perfuse the brain. And it's so funny. We talk about, about phenylephrine these days. So, you know, in the old days, you know, of course, we had norepi, right? You know, like you do now. But we never wanted to use norepi. Never. And there was a saying that we had. Ramsha, I'm going to ask you. So norepinephrine is also known as? Constrictor. Yeah, what's its other name? Vasopressin. No. No. Levofed. 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 Are you really going to say that? Yes, because in the old days, whenever they would pull out the levofed, it was because we were going to leave them dead. Levofed is leave them dead. We used to believe that drug was like, that's it. You don't have have anything else. When you have to use this, Ball game is over, um, and they just, nobody, nobody, they did horrible with it. But it was for other reasons. Now, Levafed is a go-to. Yeah, I'd much it's rather have Levafed. tremendously. Yeah. Joe, how did Levafed get that reputation? Was it because of the alpha vasoconstriction, the thought part of it, and it left ischemic 
you know, ischemic limbs and ischemic tissue. Is that how it got that reputation? Yeah, we basically treat we basically well, treated we treated low cardiac output syndrome mm-hmm. to get a blood pressure yeah. by basically shutting off the circulation to all of the rest of the body except for the blood pressure plate the place we were measuring the blood pressure from. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well, effort is worse than that. Phenylephrine is a more stronger alpha than levofen. But we did we did at the time at the time, we just didn't really understand that. So, oh. nor, so, 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 uh, 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 neosinephrine was being used, and the patient wasn't responding sufficiently to it, and we were at whatever max dose of neo we were going to use, and then we go to levofed because we're going to leave them dead. It's phase two. So right. So now we have other much more suitable means of improving cardiac output, mechanical devices, whether it be the balloon pump, whether it be I mean, back in the day when we put balloon pumps in, balloon pumps were big deals. Mm-hmm. We had to do cut downs on the femoral and we had to sew a graft on and then we had to insert the balloon through that graft and you know, you had to measure it like this. We didn't have fluoro in the room or something like that. You know, I mean, it, it was a very I mean, challenging we were thing. even doing timing. Yes, we exactly. <laughs> we would have to time it. And, you know, the, I mean, the advanced timing was were just the slides. Yeah. Putting it on one to two and measuring your inflation and deflation. But back in the, even before that, we had dials for the milliseconds, oh you know, that you needed to inflate. For how long it stayed inflated. And how long it stayed, right, and when it would deflate. Mm-hmm. So it was, there were dials, and they were in milliseconds. And, you know, so it, things John, did have you have dials so much. That was before well, your time, I too. I came along when we had the slides. The I had slides, the slides. And, and let me tell you something. Um, you know, there wasn't much ECMO back then, but I had... We would stay up all night in front of the balloon pump as if it were like an ECMO machine and yep. sitting there and adjusting the inflation and deflation yes. Yes. minute to minute. Yes. All night long. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember doing overnight shifts with balloon pumps. Can you yeah. imagine that now? Yeah. No. No, but then we have, now we have impellas. You have balloon pumps. Then you have impella. Um, certainly we have veno-arterial ECMO. Our cannulation well, is so much. We have come a long, long... We've come a long way, but in comparison to where everything else technologically has gone, we have gone nowhere. So, you know, it depends on how you want to look at this. Well, I mean, I think electronic charting or EMR, you know, electronic medical records is a perfect example of, I'm not saying I'm for it, but everyone else has gone to it, has gone to it a long time ago. And here we are with our paper charts. Mm-hmm. Majority of perfusion, I think, still has paper charts. And even if they have converted to some, you know, uh, automatic charting, they're still using paper charts for some things. Yes. You know? Absolutely. I, I agree. I agree. Well, ECMO is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, but I just, what I'm trying to say is, is that when you look at the technical advancements of society oh, at large, mm-hmm. and you compare the changes in technology over the past 50 years 
and you look at the changes in technology in perfusion and cardiac surgery, well, maybe not so much cardiac surgery because they're doing robotic. And they're stuff, doing minimally invasive. Let's, and... say, let's just say, we'll just stick it, stay with perfusion. Comparatively, society and everything else has accelerated to here, but perfusion is still here. It's much better than it was, and if you compare where we are to where we were, it looks huge. But if you compare our advancements to the advancements of everything else, we're lagging way behind. Yeah, I think uh, this, uh, the commentary, the, the article that we reviewed for Journal Club, the, uh, uh, the author says something similar to that. He says, you know, in his intro, he says, I think back to the early CPB machines, such as the one from his particular institution that was pictured in Life magazine in 1957 and wonder, why haven't we come further? He, he, he must have consulted me on that. <laughs> okay? He must have consulted. He must know me. Does he know me? Who is it? Well, I mean, I don't know if that speaking is the perfusionist, Travis Schiffering, or the doctor, Dr. Lodge. I'm not sure who, who was first person yeah, here. Yeah, they both called me and I talked to him. 